Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew, before the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul." And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which passes, which compasses the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the Onks stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I'm going to be covering some big picture items that come up in Genesis chapter 2 here. Um, I think it's important for us to have an understanding what everything that God is doing is rooted in, and the Bible is really all about him, and we are the beneficiaries or the recipients of the love that is exists within the Godhead. 
So as we go through life and we suffer our trials and tribulations and all of the issues of life, which can be very difficult, if we just fall back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and Genesis 1 in particular, and consider the promise of God, we can appreciate that everything that we suffer is just temporal, that God is going to get us through it. He is a God of covenant. He is um, a God of love, and he will, uh, everything that he has intended to do, he will bring to fruition, and that means that all of his people will get to glory. But life is difficult in between. I was uh, speaking about Jacob uh, yesterday, and Jacob summarizes his life to Pharaoh when he says, all the, days of my, all the days of the years of my life have been few and evil. And when we get further into Genesis, we'll talk about Jacob and we'll see his life. It was very difficult, but God is faithful and got him uh, to glory because our, uh, Jesus says that, speaking of God, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Therefore, Jacob is living and is in glory. So... God is the God of the living, and he will make sure that every one of us gets to where we need to be, where he has promised us that we will be. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. So when we pick up Genesis <coughs> chapter 2, what we get um, is an expansion of what took place on the sixth day of creation, in particular on uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where God says he created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So... What takes place here in Genesis chapter 2 really takes place before the seventh day, before God rested. So he's going to open up and expand for us, give us some details about how he created man and woman. And then he's going to talk about the, and the dynamics of that relationship and the dynamics of what he, how he created them. We're going to see wonderful parallels with respect to the church. Um, and as I'm developing that and getting to there, I want to remind us that last week we talked about Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses in terms of the Sabbath rest that is introduced to us there in the very beginning of the Bible, that we went from there, we went from Genesis, we went over to Exodus where we saw in the law where God had given us the fourth commandment, and the root of that commandment points back to the six days of creation and points to that God rested, and so we can summarize it and say God rested and therefore so should you. So he creates for us a day of rest which is made for our benefit and not the other way around. Now, a lot of people have a bee in their bonnet about the fourth commandment and in the context that, well, you know, there are ten commandments and uh, God insists that we obey all of them. And why is the fourth one special that we don't have to, everybody has to actually put down everything and stop working on the fourth with respect to the fourth commandment? And my answer to that is that the fourth commandment is the only commandment where God specifically says that he gave it to us as a sign of something else. He gave the Sabbath day as a sign of something else. He says that in Ezekiel and then in the New Testament in Colossians. He tells us quite plainly that the Sabbath day is a shadow of things to come. In other words, it's pointing towards something else. And then the Lord stands up at that, you know, or during one of the feasts or when he's speaking, he says that he is the Sabbath, that he is the rest, that all should come to him who are weary and heavy laden, that they should come to him and he will give them rest for their soul. So it's a soul rest that we're looking for and it's a soul rest that can only be found in Christ. So he himself in particular is the Sabbath. He is the fulfillment of that and we are not to rest on a particular day, on a particular occasion, but we are to rest in a particular person. We are to rest in Christ. So if you rest in Christ, you are keeping the fourth commandment. Now in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, we talked about how there is an eternal rest that's in view here back in Genesis chapter 2 because it speaks about us entering into God's rest. And so that's to be found in eternal fellowship with God 
resting in him where we will no longer be at war with our flesh, we'll no longer be at war with this world, and we'll no longer be at war with Satan. We will have been removed from this world, we'll be in eternal glory in our eternal bodies, and resting in the Lord forevermore. So um, we got there by noting that the seventh day had not been closed out, and so there's lots of intimations that we could learn from that, which we did, and so we took that all the way up to Revelation chapter 22, because in here it talks about, we saw that intimation because the seventh day was not closed out, therefore it's a time of eternal light and eternal rest. There's a period, it's a period of where there is no darkness. And so that took us all the way up to Revelation where we saw that the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem has no need for the sun, neither for the moon to shine as for the glory of God does lighten it. And then in particular, not only does the glory of God lighten it, but God tells us specifically that Christ himself, the Lamb, is the light thereof of this heavenly Jerusalem. And we know that in Hebrews that God says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. So Christ is the one that's really in view here in terms of uh, getting to this, this rest. So eternal rest with God in Christ is where the Sabbath thread uh, took us in terms of God's tapestry set for us here in Scripture. But like tapestries, all tapestries, there's another thread that goes through the same place that takes us, um, gives us more of an appreciation of the things that God has done. It gives us a greater theological understanding of what God has done and what he is doing. So we see in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2 here, it says that God rested on the seventh day. This is pre-fall. And this is before man has done any work. He hasn't been put into the garden yet, or um, he's put in there in the sixth day. So yes, man has been put in the garden, but he's not doing any work. He's just there to tend it and to keep it. It's not until Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, that it's by the sweat of man's brow that he will take, his, um, uh, take from the fruits of the earth. So he doesn't really, man doesn't really work yet. He, Adam was just supposed to dress it and to keep it. So we should appreciate that man has not done any work yet because... Man is not the one resting on this day. Literally, here it's only God that is resting. So with respect to the creative process, as much as man thinks of himself, man had nothing to do with it. He didn't create anything. He didn't form anything. And he didn't make anything. And those are the three words that we find in Genesis chapter 1. God creates things, he forms things, and he makes things. And so the same thing is true spiritually with respect to regeneration. We had nothing to do with it. We had nothing to do with our first birth, and we have nothing to do with our rebirth. It's exclusively the work of God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So it is God who has done all the work here up to this point, and not man. And therefore, it is only God who rests here, for the rest of man is not necessary because he's not done anything. And so there's something theologically instructive here with respect to God resting. So here's the $64,000 question. Where does God rest? Or where would he rest? And I think that's a fair question. It says he rested here. Where does he rest? Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, Solomon is speaking here because Solomon has been the one who's been tasked to build the temple, the iconic temple that, that uh, much of the scripture speaks about as a type and illusion of the future temple, which is uh, built of, consists of Christians. So in verse 2, excuse me, verse 1 of 2 Chronicles chapter 2, it says, God, as Solomon determined to build a house for the name of the Lord and a house for his kingdom. So Solomon wants to build a place for God to live and then as he goes on here, um, 
In verse 5, he says, In the house which I build, Solomon speaking, is great, for great is our God above all gods. Then he asks the question, But who is able to build him a house, seeing the heaven and earth, excuse me, seeing the heaven and heavens of heavens cannot contain him? Well, that's a fair question. I mean, when you consider everything that God has done, speaking the entire physical creation and the spiritual creation into existence, where does he live? What could house him? Who is able to build him a house, seeing the heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him? In other words, the only thing that I can do here is I can make a place where we can burn sacrifices under God. This place I'm building cannot contain God. Now, um, continuing with this thought here, we ask ourselves, where can God live? Where where is his place of of rest? In Isaiah 66, um, verse 1, the Lord himself asked the question. In Isaiah 66, 1, it says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? Now, Isaiah's written well after the temple was built, so God can see the temple that Solomon's built, and it's fair for him to ask, where is the house that you build for me, and where is the place of my rest? Now, recall that when Jesus walked the earth, in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So he's going to ask the same question. He says, uh, Jesus said, Then foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He is, um, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God incarnate. He is the visible revelation of the living God. Where is he going to rest and where is he going to build? Um, and where is he going to lay his head? Second um, Chronicles chapter 2 again, back to verse 7. Solomon continues here with respect to building this place. He says, send me now therefore a man... Cunning to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in iron and in purple and in crimson and in blue. Who do you suppose that cunning man might be? (laughs) Well, it's God manifest in the flesh. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. That's the man who's going to build um, the house here. And so we should appreciate what it says in Psalm 127.1. In Psalm 127.1, it says, Except... The Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. So this should help us appreciate a, a, a very basic theological truth that you and I are not going to build a place that's sufficient to contain God or one that he would be willing to dwell in because he is a righteous, just, and holy God, and he's not going to make a house um, in a wreck like me without himself fixing it and making it suitable for him to dwell. So who is going to build the house that God is going to rest in? It's going to be Jesus Christ, the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And I want you to hang on to that word when we're looking in Scripture because there's a difference how God identifies himself throughout the Scripture. And we're going to see a name change, or rather a name addition, between verses 3 of Genesis chapter 2 and verses 4. God's going to introduce something about his character and about his nature. So where is God going to rest and where is he going to make his place? Well, in Isaiah um, 66, 
Verses 1, he tells us, he says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build for me, and where is the place of rest? And then he goes and answers his own question. For all these things hath my hand made, and all those things hath been, saith the Lord. And this is the answer to the question. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. That's going to be who builds the Lord's house, and that's going to be his house, and that's going to be who he's going to rest in. Now, in Isaiah 57, uh, 12, I think it is Isaiah 57, 15, um, the Lord, again, sheds a little bit more light on that when he says, For thus saith the high and lofty one, in other words, God, one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, speaking of himself, I dwell in the high and holy place. And who does he dwell with? With him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. That is who he dwells with. And there is one person in particular that meets that definition, and that's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And the other person is, or people, because this is plural here, I will dwell with him, and he uses the word them. He's going to dwell with Christians only that are made in the image and likeness of his Son, Jesus Christ. And so that is where he's taking us here. That is where he's going to rest. He's going to look to this man that is of a humble heart and contrite spirit. And so that's the temple in which God is going to dwell in. And that is the one which he is building, and that includes Christ Jesus and all the Christians, for only they are of a contrite and humble spirit. Now, if you're not there yet, if you're not of a hum, uh, humble heart and contrite spirit, um, you will be. God will get you there. And the walk in this life is one where God continuously humbles us and brings us low to conform us to the image of his son. His intention and desire is that you will let go of everything on this earth that you trust in, including yourself, and look exclusively to Jesus Christ as your source of sustenance, as your source of all, all peace and, um, and, and life, indeed. In him is life. So uh, the Bible speaks of this process, and so Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, gives us details of this process. Now, in Romans chapter 5, verse 14, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to share with you. It says that Adam... Adam is a figure or type of him that was to come. Adam is a type of him that was to come. So when you're looking at Adam here, you should understand what things took place respecting Adam and what decisions Adam made and the things that he faced in the garden are telling us and teaching us about um, Christ Jesus, the one that was to come, which is Christ Jesus. So he's not, not just the Son of God, but the Son of God manifest in flesh, Christ Jesus. Now, Eve, we understand to be a type of the church. And so it's the dynamics of their loving relationship between the two of them and the things that took place with respect to how the woman came from the man. Uh, those things are representative of our relationship between Christ, us and Christ, because we are the, the, the church of Christ. And so it is the um, God is setting before us things that we should understand and appreciate um, between Christ and his church and Adam and Eve. Now, 
in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, which our deacon read this morning. He read that whole section there, and there's a lot in there that we should understand and appreciate. For not only does it contain the way we should conduct ourselves and the way we should live, which if we did those things, if our husbands really loved their wives like Christ loved the church, and if their wives really reverenced their husbands, well, there'd be a lot of peace at home. Life would be better. Um, but that's the way it should be, but not the way it is because of sin. So the Lord says in verse 32, he says, This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So we don't need to guess about what the Lord is talking about in Ephesians uh, chapter 5 there, and we don't need to guess about what the Lord is teaching us in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. He specifically says, I'm sharing with you this mystery concerning Christ and the church. So um, by way of application, as I've said this in the past, that everything that we see out in this world um, essentially is an attack against God. If it's not overt rebellion against him in terms of I don't want to do what God has told me to do, the attack on the institution of marriage is an attack on Christ and his church and all of the teachings and theological understanding and appreciation that we might have pulling from the uh, scripture because a one man and one woman represents Christ and his church exclusively. And so anything that varies from that, multiple wives, uh, same-sex marriage is a direct attack on this typology that God has clearly set forth in Scripture from beginning to end to teach us about Christ and his church. And there are many wonderful things that the Lord teaches us about that, teaches, has to teach us. I mean, security of salvation and, and uh, resting in someone that, that completely loves you and, would, and has indeed died for you. I mean, those things bring me comfort knowing what God has done to secure a place for me in glory and, a, to, in particular, a place um, with him and eternal fellowship with him. So what we see here in the world is an attack on that and it is an attack on families themselves and um, an attack on the family itself is really an attack on all of the fundamental foundations, uh, governmental foundations of the world. Pull down the family and, and its institution and the way it's been set up and organized by God, and you are essentially pulling down all governmental structures that are set up, up by God. And God has set this in people's hearts. Remember I talked about firmware. Men are, and women are wired a certain way to um, desire certain things, and so anything that attacks that really creates a lot of internal conflict and um, consternation within the heart of, of men. Um, my wife and I happened to be watching a certain TV program the other day which um, talked about how um, twins were born to a certain couple and um, in the process of circumcision, one of the twin boys suffered an injury for which the parents thought, well, you know what, we'll just tell him he's a girl. And so they raised this poor young man as a girl um, for his early life. And at the age of 10, I think they said they finally told him the truth. And when they told this poor young man the truth, uh, just, he just felt an incredible sense of relief because everything in his life up to that point, they'd been trying to tell him he's a girl and that he should like to do these activities. And he was over here rough and tumbling. And he indeed was even getting in fights and beating up people that were picking on his twin brother. I mean, he just happened to be the rough and tumbler of the two of them. The point being that I don't care what you try to box, you try to push a person in. They know they're a boy or they know they're a girl because that's the way God made them. They have the chromosomal makeup of the particular sex and they are wired with the firmware to do the things that God has ordained for men to do and for women to do. So again, to attack the institutions of God as set forth in the Bible and try to push people in a different direction is going to create all sorts of trouble inside of them. 
And as you might imagine, the story has a very sad ending because eventually the poor young man committed suicide after all the things that he had suffered in his youth. He was never able to, obviously, overcome them. So that's where it leads. So we know that in the homosexual households, they actually have a higher case of domestic abuse. They have a higher case of, of uh, suicide and all sorts of um, other problems because they're doing something contrary to the way God has wired them. And deep down in their heart, because God has written his law in the hearts of every man, we talked about that last week from Romans chapter 2, they know what they're doing is wrong. So getting back to Genesis chapter 2 here, we should appreciate that God is the one who is building, he's building a house for him to live in, a house for him to rest. Now, in simple language, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, God says, God dwelleth in us. That's where we are now as a Christian. It says God dwelleth in us. So certain people are indwelled by God. He doesn't live in everybody, and we'll get to that in a minute, but he indwells certain people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it speaks about this temple, and he says, Ye also, meaning like Christ, are lively stones. You're a living stone. All Christians are living stones that God is picking up from all over the world and taking them, and he's planted, putting them in this temple that he is building, of which he himself is the foundation thereof. Now, if you were to look at the um, interesting aspects of Solomon's temple when they built it, it specifically says that the stones were quarried far away, and when they were brought together... They fit together perfectly. There was not the sound of a tool heard in the temple. So they didn't bring them and have to start chiseling these things to get these stones to fit together. They fit perfectly. And so it is with the saints. People from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue from all over the world are taken. And God brings these people, we are living stones, and puts them together. And guess what? We fit together perfectly. Um, but the quarrying process can be kind of painful. We'll just leave that alone. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, the Lord says, Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God. So a couple of places in the scriptures tell us very clearly that God dwells in us and God uh, lives in us. <laughs> so if you're pregnant, you can really appreciate what that means. You can get a real life, and God, as I said before, God has ordained everything, the reproductive process, to glorify himself and to teach us these spiritual truths. So here we are in Genesis chapter 2. God is building his temple, or he's building a place of rest for himself. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we know that God spoke the heaven and the earth into existence. In Genesis chapter 2, now he's going to form man like a potter, and we do see this analogy in, in the Bible that God is the potter and we are the clay. God is going to form the man out of the dust of the earth. And again, when you look out the window, you see that when man dies, what does he turn to? He turns to dust, and so does everything that God formed out of the earth. It all turns to dust, which is why we don't have bones stacked up everywhere after people or animals die. They turn back to dust. So again, we see the validity of what the Bible says here. So he forms man out of the dust of the earth. Then what does he do? He brings all the beasts of the ground and all the fowls of the air to Adam to see what he would call them. Well, what is God teaching us here? He's showing Adam that guess what? There is nothing like you created yet. There's nothing out there that is like you. And there's nothing that is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Now, notice what God had said um, when he did that. Or later he's going to say this, that it is not good 
that the man should be alone. That's verse 18. It's not good that the man should be alone. It is not good that Adam should be alone. Adam is a type of Christ. It is not good that the Son of God should be alone. Well, he's not alone because he's part of the Godhead, but again, God is setting for us a theological truth here where he's taken this ultimately that the Son of Man is not going to be alone in terms of having a multitude of saints that are in his image and his likeness. So this is true with God too. Just as um, Adam names all of the creatures, we can appreciate that in Psalm 147, verse 4, it says, He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Telling the number means he counts them. There are billions of stars. I I can't tell them, but God can number them. God can number the stars, and not only has he numbered them, that he names them. He says something very similar in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. It's just a a little bit, speaks a little bit more. Isaiah 40, verse 26, it says, Lift up your eyes on high, and behold who hath created these things, that bringeth out their hosts by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one Faileth. God has created and brought all of the stars into the heaven. He's numbered every one of them, and he's also named every one of them. So can you can imagine the similarity between what I'm sharing with you and what's in Genesis 2 here about all of the creation, everything that God has spoken into existence. He looks at it, and he names it, and there's nothing like me that's out there, just like there's nothing like Adam that is out there that has been created. So what does God do? Nothing like God's been found, nothing like Adam has been found. So he's developing in Adam an appreciation about what he's about to do. Um, God knows where he's going with this, so he doesn't need to have that appreciation because he knows exactly what he's going to do. But what does he do to Adam then? He puts him into a deep sleep, puts him into a deep sleep, and he takes from his side a rib. Now, interestingly enough, of all of the bones that are in your body, The rib is a bone that can regenerate itself. So the man and the woman have the exact same number of ribs. So if you think the woman, you know, if you look at a skeleton and you want to count, you think the woman's going to have more, the answer is no. They have the exact same amount because the rib is in a sheath that if you remove the rib itself, that bone will regenerate itself. I guess God knows anatomy. So he takes from the man, takes from the side of the man, he takes a rib, a regenerative bone, and with it, he builds a woman. He builds a woman. Now, what did God do with Jesus Christ? He is God manifest in flesh, and he takes him. God takes him by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He puts him on a cross, and he slays him. He puts him in a deep sleep. And then what does he have done? A soldier takes a spear, pierces the Lord's side, and out of his side comes comes blood and water. And that blood and water coming out then goes forth into the earth in a spiritual context, and from that comes the church. So in perfect parallel, spiritual parallel, you have the creation of Eve very much like the creation of the church, the bride of Christ. God presents Eve, whom he names as woman because she was taken from the man. She's identified with him. She has a name like his, just like my wife has a name like mine, meaning Mrs. Kabbalah, <laughs> and uh, that's why women take the um, names of their husbands so that they are identified with that man. In like manner, we are called Christians because we are identified with Christ, and so that's why um, 
in typology or in helping us to appreciate the relationship between Christ and his church, the whole marriage ceremony is set up very much like we see in the scripture. The woman at the marriage ceremony ought to be veiled. I had a conversation with my daughter about that at her wedding. She, quote, forgot her veil, didn't want to do it. I drove home, got the veil. <laughs> You're going to wear a veil <laughs> because that's what the Lord says in First uh, John. It talks about how it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when the Lord comes, we shall see him as he is because we shall be like him. So the church is veiled. People see us in the world, and they don't know that we're Christians because we're veiled. On the day of when the marriage is consummated, it will be unveiled and it will be known who the saints are, who are, the, who is the bride of Christ and who is married to Christ. That will be known on that particular day. And so, again, these wonderful parallels in scriptures. Now, the woman is said to be one flesh with the man when they get married. And our, again, our deacon read about that in Ephesians chapter 5, about being one flesh. We are united with Christ we are one flesh with him. And scripture uses the language where we are in him, and it also talks about him being in us, which I just read from us a, a few minutes ago, that he is in us and we are in him. Now, what is the root of all of this? What is the motivation in all of this? It's love. Now, it is said in the scripture that God is love. God is love. So I'm going to share some things with you that people don't appreciate. But God is love, and that means within the Trinity of the Godhead, and the word God in, the first, in Genesis 1 is Elohim, which is plural. We know that if God is love, then there is one who loves, and there is one who is loved. I mean, love that, is not, um, that does not have an object um, doesn't really exist as far as I know. There has to be an object of love and, and a recipient of the love. So there is one who loves and there is the object of the love. And again, we can appreciate the Trinity, that uh, God is three in one. And so the church, the thing that the Lord is building here is an expansion of that love within the Godhead so that the love that the Father confers upon the Son is also conferred upon all of the saints. And when we study the um, Gospel of John and John... 17 in particular, the Lord says there very plainly that he has the same love for the saints, for every Christian that the Father has for the Son. He's loved us the same way. And he's also loved us, he loves us to the same degree, the same depth, the same intensity, but for the same duration of time. In other words, he's, he has loved us from before the foundation of the world. Now, the fact that God is love does not mean that God loves everybody. So that is commonly taught that God loves everybody, but that's not what the scripture says. So people run to John 3.16 and they go, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him um, should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a qualifying statement. Whosoever believeth in him. Um, that is an example of how God loved the world, but what is the definition of the world? Well, it can mean different things. It can mean everything, every human being, or it can mean the world of the elect. So when you get to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Well, that directly contradicts John 3.16, so therefore John 3.16 must mean something different than we think it means. It must mean something exclusive. And it does. It means that God loves a particular people because those are the ones that he died for. Now, if God does not love everyone, and we'll look at some scriptures that show that, it means that he um, did not die for everyone because greater hath, uh, 
Greater love hath not this than a man should lay down his life for his friend. Love that God manifested by dying for his people is unique to the people that he died for. Um, in Psalm chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, I'll read that verse, those verses to you. It says here, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. It says here that God hates all workers of iniquity. Now, you will hear people say, Well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Well, that might be true for me as, a, as one the Lord has conferred his love upon because he died for me, but that's not true in general. God hates sinners, too. In verse 6 here, Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. God is hating an individual here. He's hating a person. And so I, I did share that with a person, and he said the same thing to me. He hates the sin, uh, loves the sinner. I said, well, that's not, you know, I, I took him right here and showed it to him, and I said, he's speaking about a person here. And that's the reality of it. In Psalm 11, verse 5, it says, The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. So again, we see that the Lord is hating an individual here. Now, Notice the ones I've read to you here, the scriptures I've read to you here. It says Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So we can appreciate here, while that God is love, there's a qualification to his love, and that is rooted in his righteousness. So we go back to Genesis chapter 2 here, and we notice something peculiar in the pattern. In verses 1 through 3, it says, and I'm just going to read verse 3 here, And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Now let's go to verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Notice the introduction of the word Lord here. Whenever you see Lord in all capitalized, it's translated from the Hebrew word Jehovah, which is indicative of God's righteousness. The word Jehovah has built into it God's righteousness. Elohim is indicative of God's, God as a covenant maker, that God is a promise keeper. And I'll show you a couple of verses on that. So in Genesis chapter 1, um, the word Elohim has in its root, I swear. And so since God can swear by no higher, he swears by himself that he is going to do everything that, in fact, he has said he is going to do. But when you get to Genesis chapter 2, you see the introduction of the word Lord, Jehovah. What also comes in Genesis chapter 2 is law. That's where he puts two trees in the garden, and he sets before Adam the law. You can eat from any tree that you want, except that one. That's the law. Very simple, only one law. And why this is important is because as you move forward and as you go forward in your walk, Christian walk and your thinking, be careful that you don't appreciate that though God is love, he is also a God of righteousness and justice. So when you get to Genesis chapter 3, if you look at verse 1, Satan knows this and he perverts God's word and he also sets before um, Eve... Um, language to help deceive her. In verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. I appreciate that God puts these right in our face. And he said, this is Satan speaking, he said unto the woman, Yea, 
Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? It was the Lord God who said, don't eat of every tree of the garden, because again, Lord Jehovah represents righteousness. So a good way to think of this is, and this is a little colloquial, I admit, but it helps you remember, it helps you think of it. If you think of the word Elohim as, let's say, Bob, a friendly term, and the word Jehovah as an officer, um, that might mean something to you. So Satan comes before um, Eve and he says, hey, did Bob say you can't eat from that tree? No, it was Officer Bob who said you can't eat from that tree. I mean, if somebody tells you out front, uh, you know, Officer Bob said you cannot park your car there, that would be different than you if, than if they said, you know, Bob said you shouldn't park your car here. Well, did Bob really say that? You know, you, you would not be thinking about um, the officer in his office um, as a law keeper. Um, and so it is uh, with the Lord, that he is indeed a, a law keeper. And so love that moves forward is going to be qualified on righteousness and obedience. And we're going to see that as we move forward in the scripture here. So that um, God is a covenant keeper and in terms of Elohim. Um, we see throughout the scripture. And one of the places, uh, you recall last week I mentioned to you that there are two covenants in the Bible. There's an eternal covenant, and then there's a conditional covenant. Well, we are the recipients of the eternal covenant, but God sets before the Hebrew people, uh, the, the physical nation of Israel, a conditional covenant that says, you know, if you'll keep my word, then you can be on the land. If you violate my word, then I'm going to take you off the land. And we talked about that. He took them off the land for um, 70 years because for 430 years they failed to observe its uh, yearly Sabbath. Um, he says before them the Mosaic law, but that uh, portions of that law, the Ten Commandments are written on, the, on everybody's heart. So nobody can keep the law. But, and so because God is, is faithful to himself and that he is just and he's righteous, um, He's going to make sure that that law is kept in his individual. So I'm just going to take you to Titus chapter 1, verse 2. I'll read the first two verses. It says, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began that you would be the recipient of eternal life was a promise God made to himself before the world began. We had no part of that. We are simply the recipients. And if you can appreciate that a promise was made within the Godhead that you would receive eternal life, it ought to help you get through this life because eternal life is reserved in heaven for you. He will bring to fruition everything that he has promised. In Hebrews 13, 5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is going to get you to where he promised within himself that he would get you to. In, in Romans chapter 8, there's this wonderful section about love, because as I said to you, this is all rooted in love, and he shares with us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. He asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Shall any of those things, he lists seven things, shall separate you from the love of God? The answer is no. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, and Satan is an angel, nor principalities nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor other creature 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And I put this in my notes here. This is man again. Not even you can separate yourself from the love of God. There's not a thing that you can do that will um, have your name uh, taken out of the book of life. Your faith and your trust is in Christ in the work that he has done on your behalf. You cannot, um, you could do nothing to merit his favor, nor can you do anything that will take you out of his favor because he has promised within the Godhead that he will um, uh, get you to glory, that you will in fact have eternal life. Now, years ago, you might have remembered there was the group called the Promise Keepers. Um, and I remember talking to a guy about it, and I'm like, well, what is that? And he explained it to me, and I thought, well, that doesn't describe men. That's not what the Bible says about men. The Bible says that only God is faithful. Only let God be true and every man a liar. Men do not keep promises. That is not their nature. And I used to warn people about making a, a deal with God. Don't make a deal with God. Just say, thank you, Lord, for everything that you have given me. Have mercy on me but don't make a deal with them. And young Christians do that. Well, Lord, you know, if you'll do this, why then I'll do that. You don't want to do that because he might hold your feet to the fire and make you do it like he did Israel. He gave them all of the blessings that he said he would give them and he gave them all of the curses that he said he would give them. Do this and you'll be blessed. Don't do that and you'll be cursed. And so they receive both sides of it. And people only want to think that the Jews are going to get only the good side of the equation. And that's not God. They're going to, they got both sides of it. You don't believe that. Uh, take a look at the history of World War II. It did not go well for them. And it didn't go well for them under the Assyrians. It didn't go well for them under the Babylonians. It didn't go well for them under the Greeks. It didn't go well for them under the Romans. God is faithful, just, and true. So he will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. He says of himself that he is a covenant maker and that there is none like him. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 23, he says... And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with all thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. The Lord keeps his covenant. Nobody can stay the hand of the Lord. And he shares that with us in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27. He says, for the Lord God, for the Lord of hosts hath purposed. God has decided he's going to do something. Who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? I mean, it's, I hate to say it, because I know we fall into doubt. We wonder sometimes about whether or not we're actually going to get to glory. And, and so the Lord puts these very simple things in front of us. You know, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nobody that can turn back God's hand. We forget that he spoke the heavens and earth into existence. I mean, that's, that's indicative of his, uh, of his great power. He stayed the rotation of the earth, and he turned it back once as it suited him, and he did that without everybody flying off. Um, so nobody can stay the hands of the Lord. He is faithful, and he's just, and he's true, and we will get to glory. But as I said, there's a lot of tribulation between us and when we go to glory. We'd love to think that it'll be like it was with Enoch. Enoch walked with God and was not. We'll just be, well, I'm in glory. <laughs> or we might be like um, Elijah, who was taken up in a whirlwind. Or the Lord is coming very soon, and as it says in 1 Corinthians, that with a twinkling of an eye, you know, flesh, this corruptible flesh will put on incorruption. Um, but that's not going to be the case for most people. 
in terms of when the Lord's coming. I think he's coming soon, but maybe not soon enough. So we're going to have trials and tribulations, and eventually this flesh is going to the grave. And that's the hardest thing for people to let go of is their flesh. And that's the only way we get to glory is when the flesh goes to the grave, or, as I said, when um, this corruption puts on incorruption. So my desire as we move forward, um, in summary, is that we will rest in the Lord. He's setting before us all of the things that he has done. We don't participate in it in the context of advancing our um, advancing this process. We simply are the recipients of it. He's working with our hearts and working with our lives to conform us to the image of his Son, that we would be of a humble and contrite heart and spirit, being in the image and likeness of his Son, which is what he says he's going to do in verse 27, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. And that's a promise that exists in the Godhead, and God is faithful, and that promise will be fulfilled. There will be a church, it will be in glory, and it will be very much like his son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.